and welcome to On Geopolitics, the podcast that looks at geopolitics in historical contexts with myself, Ali Ansari, and my co-host, Suzanne Rain. Today, it gives us great pleasure to welcome Jade McLean, who is from uh, currently at the Middlebury Institute of International Relations and has been working on Russia and Russia's war. You've got a book coming out, I think, Jade, soon on Russia's war and also have another book. Actually, you're very productive. You've got two books coming out this summer, one on uh, memory makers and the other on uh, Russia's war. And we want to talk to you today really about this idea of uh, whether it is, as Suzanne was saying earlier, whether it is actually Russia's war or is it Putin's war? Suzanne, did you want to take that on? So, Ali, that was my question. That I know, just which I've just posed. <laughs> yeah. But, Jade, we're delighted to have you with us because I think ever since Russia invaded Ukraine in February this year, there's been some confusion and debate in certainly Western commentary about whether to say this is Putin's war, whether this is Russia's war. And, of course, at the heart of that is the issue that you've done all your research on, which is essentially what is Russia and is it one man or is it a collective um, decision? Is it collective? So you've called your book Russia's War. Is that you saying what you think the answer to that is? Yes, 100%. That's exactly, that's exactly what it is. I think that, um, and thank you for having me on, sorry, before I launch straight into the sort of the, the meat of it. But um, I think I understand why many Western policymakers, by why many Westerners even, and, and also why many Russian liberals who are opposed to the regime would want to paint this just as Putin's war. And I think, you know, the notion that, that Putin in, invaded Ukraine despite the Russian people is, and that it's just sort of one bad Tsar sort of spoiling the barrel. Um, and once he dies, once or once his generation perhaps has died out, then the Russian people sort of trot merrily onto this path of progress um, with, with a liberal youth who, who admire and envy the West. I completely understand the appeal of this narrative. And I even understand the sort of why it might work as a policy, but it has the huge disadvantage of being untrue. Um, Russia's war on Ukraine is popular with a large number of Russians and it's acceptable to an even larger number. And I think that's something that needs to be understood because a lot of the time in discussions, people just want sort of, they think, oh, if we can just get rid of Putin or if only the Russians knew what was happening in this war. But I mean, very broadly, they know and very broadly, they support it. I'm not talking about specific things here or, or maybe support is the right word, but they approve or they're willing to accept it. So the the thing that we're going to get into is how and why they are proven are willing to accept it. And so that sense how how a kind of shared identity is created. And on the one hand, I suppose you've got an argument which says it's very difficult to be an oppositionist mm -hmm. in Russia. So it'd be really interesting to sort of hear your views on whether there is an opposition to the war in Russia and, and whether the opposition to the war in Russia is synonymous with the opposition in Russia. Actually, can we start mm -hmm. with that question? Because because actually, I don't think the two, if there's a Venn diagram, mm -hmm. I think it's only a bit in the middle, isn't it? Which is opposition to Putin, who's also opposed to the war. I think Navalny said a number of things which have, which have been very anti-Ukrainian. Now, what's your view on that? Um, so Navalny, for example, he's been very, very clear that he's against the war. And in any case, I feel, you know, I, I sort of feel like Paul Navalny should be left in peace about his views on Crimea. He's got enough <laughs> on his plate. So I'd like to speak more generally about about the opposition, but just just to clarify, Navalny has been very very clear that he is against this war and has made some you know some brave statements from from prison about that. Um, I do think though that more broadly, you you hit upon an interesting point, which is that 
so sometimes I, I find the question, okay, do Russians support the war? It's, of course, it's interesting, but I think the more interesting question is why do Russians support the war or why do Russians not support the war in, in this case, in answer to your question? And a lot of the time, the reason that they don't support the war is often for reasons that essentially revolve around Russians and the language um, around the war in certain sections of of the of Russian liberals. It's They're quite inchoate, you know, they're quite sort of, they find it hard to get along, <laughs> which is part of the issue over, over many years. But um, is that they don't really centre the Ukrainian experience. And you've seen some quite nasty sort of comments from, from leading um, oppositioners um, to Ukrainians, and they've often been annoyed or sort of compared the way that Ukrainians are talking about Russians, you know, to Putin, which is obviously completely unacceptable because essentially Ukrainians are going to say a lot of things about Russians, but but they're not the ones sort of waging a war against against Russia. It's Russia waging a war against them. And I think there's this kind of this introspection and this self-obsession. I have a statistic from from the book, which is that I looked at the social media channels and I looked at Navalny's channel, which of course isn't isn't run by Navalny these days, but by his team. And if the average number of references to Ukraine in pro-war channels, in pro-war sort of social media channels, was about 1,200, then on Navalny's channel, it was 18. So in discussions of the war, Ukraine just isn't mentioned, or it's very rarely mentioned among Russian liberals. And I think that's fascinating because it talks to how there are much longer kind of ways of seeing the world and ways of seeing Russia and uh, that, that actually penetrate into both those who are for Putin, but also those who are against him. Does it also indicate that they're thinking quite rationally that setting an opposition cause alongside an anti-war in Ukraine cause potentially undermines their appeal to large parts of the Russian population who support exactly. the war. No, I, I think they're both I think that they're both correct though, because they both lead us back to the point of okay, so then this war is actually is either quite popular or there's a sunken cost fallacy going on where so many people have died that now it means a lot to people and and they're going to need to get something from it. Either way, essentially any future democratic and, and I find it very hard to see how Russia in the short to medium term gets onto a democratic path, but any future democratic path without a huge kind of shift in what we'll for shorthand call the Russian worldview, it will be supportive of this war or at least of, of similar wars. And it doesn't really solve the problem for, for Russia's neighbours or indeed for Russia, because this is money that should be spent on developing Russia. I mean, one of the things I wanted to sort of like ask you is to what extent this, this you know, how it's been constructed. I mean, how the sort of the... Uh, popular support for the war or for any sort of like sort of aggressive posture really to its near abroad. I mean, presumably this is something that this is a project that the elite, if you will, I mean, have been building on over the last, what, two decades? Or I mean, how long, or or is this, are you saying this is something actually, you know, much deeper in the Russian psychology or something? I mean, they're obviously building on something, I I take it, but nonetheless, they must have put quite a bit of effort into Mm -hmm. also constructing a sort of a, a, a narrative of a narrative of grievance, a narrative of you know, you know what it is to be Russian, and why it's you know why everyone should be supporting the, uh, the, the this war. Yeah, I've, I think it's definitely that mix, as you're saying, Ali. So, really, I would say the kind of the turning point or the important turning point for this is 2012 and, and Putin's third term, right? Um, when presidential term, when he came back after, if you remember, after Medvedev had his had his little run um, of <laughs> being president. Um, and and we saw a real shift in the language there um, in terms of a real shift towards a sort of more civilizational discourse, I suppose, around what it means to be Russia, the idea of Russia as a great power, the idea is Russia as sort of not having a Western path and, and even kind of almost Russia playing this 
sort of counter-revolutionary role in the world. And then with the 2014 um, Revolution of Dignity in Ukraine, which ousted the pro um, the pro Russian uh, then president um, Viktor Yanukovych, in the sense that he fled once he lost the the support of his security services. Um, the, a lot of the narratives that we see today justifying the war in, on Ukraine, they also they well, they didn't start then, but they really became quite intense then. And that's actually how I became interested in this very topic, because I've been analysing it since then, because I lived in Moscow in 2014. And I was sort of watching this on the news every day. And I just I just found it. I mean, obviously, I found it horrifying, but I also found it quite fascinating. Mm. Um, and so and I've been sort of studying it ever since the way they've created these narratives and also and this was a topic of my PhD, to what extent these narratives resonate with people. And, and in, as a sort of overview, what I would say is the Kremlin and sort of um, media that, that is pro-Kremlin, they choose these narratives because they resonate. And often what you will find is um, these narratives may have come up organically or they there could be initiatives, for example, that, that are organic that the Kremlin will then take over, but will try and do so in a way where it, it's not clear that the Kremlin has taken it over. So it tries very hard to sort of, it's not like the Soviet Union where everything's sort of top down and you have this party line. It's, it's I would say it's cleverer than that. Although, it, I mean, whenever they try to do something that's top down and party line, you can tell it from a mile off. Whereas when they kind of sit and watch and almost appropriate and then manipulate and divert to their own um, needs what has come up sort of organically within society, then that works a lot better, I mean, which is unsurprising. And are they doing this through education? I mean, through schools as well as just general sort of popular culture? I mean, how, how broad is it? Yeah, they are doing it through schools. But I think, um, I mean, maybe this is my own bias, but... I think perhaps the emphasis on school has been overdone because there are different history textbooks even still now, and they always talk about changing this or that, you know, or introducing some sort of indoctrination, but it never often comes to pass. They just talk about it. I think much more important is the extent to which this is in popular culture because people choose popular culture. And I think that's what's really important is this sense of Russian agency in that I mean, a lot of Russian media is not owned directly by the state. Most of the vast majority of it isn't. And it's dependent on advertising revenues. Now, of course, the state could make it clear to advertisers that you mustn't buy advertising space with this or that channel. And they have done that. But ultimately, they still need people to watch them. They still need people to be enjoying this. So I think the interesting question, again, is, well, why do people start watching and, and why do people keep on watching? So this brings us on to this question about myths and memory making which i know is is your yeah. one of your two books coming out next year and i was thinking about this morning cuz cuz ali and i have been talking a lot about about the narratives and and myths and there's something really interesting about the the debate that we're having at the moment about facts and false truths and the problem with facts is that they require an analysis they're not in themselves well they might raise emotions but Whereas stories and narratives, they, they're designed to create an emotional response, an empathetic response and, and motivation. And, and so your research, which is in that intersection between cultural studies and now geopolitical studies, is really interesting because that enables you then, I presume, to bring a sort of cultural understanding to how that, what you call memory diplomacy, how all of that works. No, I think it's an interesting point. And I think it's, of course, a very pertinent one. So often what matters is not truth, but identity. So in that sense that if we think about studies, um, we see, for example, of Russian propaganda, we see that um, 
if people support Putin and then they're shown state sort of or pro Kremlin media narratives, they're just in, they're much more likely to believe them, regardless of whether or not they're true. And then similarly, if they don't like Putin, they're much less likely to believe them, regardless of whether they're true. There's nothing that surprising in that. But really, the, the lesson that it tells us is perhaps sometimes understated, which is just that a lot of it is about how, how one identifies. But also as well, that truth is, is a more slippery concept than I think sometimes this, this focus that we have nowadays on, on disinformation sometimes allows for. I mean, particularly when it comes to history, there are many different ways of, and history is constantly being revised. But one of the things I think about a lot is there's this case, and I, I talk about it, I write about it, sorry, in my in, in Memory Makers, um, in, in the book that comes out sort of later next year. And it's about this idea of almost history as a form of allegorical truth. Um, so there's a myth, um, a Soviet myth, the myth of the 28, uh, sorry, the 27 Pamphilovsi, 28 Pamphilovsi, and it's about... Um, Basically, this this group of, of Soviet soldiers who you know defended Moscow and they sort of threw themselves. They were all sort of from different parts of the Soviet Union. They threw themselves under German tanks to help defend Moscow. It's a really touching, really moving myth. Every every single Russian knows it. There's some huge monuments to it. It's, it's you know people really buy into it. It's not true um, at all. It's it's been known for a long time that it's not true. In the Soviet Union, they tried to cover up the fact that that it wasn't true. Brezhnev personally got involved. Um, but then when the Soviet Union fell, everybody kind of understood. And yet now it's a really dominant myth. And the head of the Russian archives a few years back was actually fired for saying it wasn't true, even though everybody knows it isn't true. <laughs> um, and and uh, Vladimir Medinsky, who then was um, the Minister of Culture and is now sort of presidential aide on matters of history and memory, um, he funded and, and I think even contributed to the script of a big sort of film about the 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 twenty eight Pamphilovsi, and when it asked, well, you know, this isn't true. Sort of, he explained that it doesn't really matter because actually it's more true than truth. It carries an inner truth, basically. Exactly, exactly, yeah. almost like a higher truth, and it exactly. sort of does because it represents the 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 fact that. You know, the Soviet victory over Nazism, it was incredibly brave. It did require feats of insane individual bravery. And it was, you know, a mixed uh, group of people. It wasn't just sort of um, one nation. It was it was this mix of sort of, of different Soviet nations together. And so I, 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 it, it does. And I think in the same way, it reminded me of, you know, there was the film about Churchill a few years ago, The Darkest Hour, maybe, and he went onto the tube. And I think the director or the writer said something similar about that. that oh, okay, Because obviously we all know that he didn't go on the tube. And the idea of it even is hilarious. Yeah. It's like Churchill on the tube. I know. But um, but still, and uh, you know, he sort of made this point that well, it it was to almost like an it was almost like an allegory or, or a metaphor for how he did kind of try to listen to you know I don't know the ordinary ordinary man or the voice of the ordinary man, and I find that quite interesting because it, it doesn't matter until we're blue, if we sit down and we're blue in the face to somebody who who really loves Churchill or to go back to the Russia case to somebody who. Um, the the twenty eight Pamphilovsky myth it doesn't matter. We can explain to a blue in the face. Okay, this is the Anastasiev report. This is um, you know this is what Brezhnev did. This is what came out in the archives. They don't care. Then that's not that's not why they believe it. They believe it because it tells them something about their identity, who they belong to, to whom they are the heirs. Um, you know about uh, yeah about their group. And then of course it becomes embellished, doesn't it? On every mm -hmm. retelling, people sort of add different dimensions, <laughs> yeah. <to> different details. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very struck, and I, I should say this, that the, the, the parallels with some of the myths that have come out of the Iran-Iraq war, particularly the, your, your tank destroyer, you know, people going off. So there was a narrative and a myth built about young children going, throwing themselves under tanks to blow up tanks. And this 
became a very powerful myth, you know, these young, innocent, you know, 12-year-olds, you know, running off to, you know, uh, sacrifice themselves and martyr themselves. But of course, then after the war, people sort of said, well, we're not entirely sure it's true. But <laughs> but the fact is it had been celebrated so much and it had become such a sort of an emphatic part of the mythology of the war. And it's very striking for me, the sort of great patriotic war and, you know, what the Iranians... I mean, it, Suzanne and I were talking about this earlier, about this sort of single narrative and the way that it's shared among different groups, you know, this sort of uh, how they how they myth-make. Uh, and, of course, I think you quite rightly said, of course, we're not innocent of it ourselves, and certainly in films and other things. I think hopefully in, in the West we're slightly a, a little bit more self-critical, although uh, maybe mm. I'm being opt optimistic there. But, you know... <laughs> That there is this um, potential, really, to you know, as you say, it, it it's symbolic, it's iconic of a particular thing. So they don't worry about the detail. They don't actually worry about the truth with a small t. They're mm -hmm. obsessed with the truth with a capital T, in a sense, which for them mm -hmm. identifies them. You know, this is about being Russian. This is about mm -hmm. what being Russian is. Um, and even but, but Ali, what's happened? I'm just yeah. interrupting you because actually, what's happened now with the Russian? war on Ukraine is that that myth-making is now happening and on the battlefield. It's happening on both sides. Um, and it's an, I think it's obviously a, it's a natural consequence of a hideous war which requires great heroism, um, that you're seeing a lot of that, obviously also on the Ukrainian side. So a strengthening of, clear strengthening of Ukrainian identity and Ukrainian narratives, which is totally reinforced by extraordinary determination and, and military success against the odds. But what, uh, I mean, it's, it's, what I was, I mean, you're right. I mean, what I was saying is, is this reality not puncturing a hole in the myth? Jack? Mm. I mean, is, is, you know, did, did they not have this idea that obviously it was going to be a cakewalk and, and now did. it isn't? And something's wrong. With their yeah, narrative. you definitely get the sense. I mean, looking at polls, and of course, we have to caveat that it's very difficult to, to do polls in in a country like Russia. But but the the best we have. Um, I um, if you look at the polls, you can definitely see that there's that feeling that some something's up. You know, around eighty percent of people now are saying that they feel you know worried, concerned about the war, um, which is much higher than it was um, at the beginning. Of course, still very high numbers of, of support for the war, but again, I mean, we'd all say we supported the war if if somebody threatened us with fifteen years of prison. Um, I'd, I'd probably support the war as well. Um, so taking that all with sort of a pinch of salt, I think the interesting thing with the war is uh, people have really bought into this narrative that's been around since 2014 that in power in Ukraine are full-on Nazis or Banderivsi, so sort of Nazi collaborators, um, to all intents and purposes, is, is the way it's used. Um, they really believe this. And now they think that because the Kremlin had to come up with a sort of reason for why it wasn't a cakewalk, it's that, okay, there were more Banderivsi than we fought, or there were more Nazi collaborators and Nazis than we fought, and also the West is arming them, and this is a civilizational war. And certainly from talking to foreign policy elites, I spoke to quite a few sort of from my book, including people who are very close to, to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, and the Kremlin, and they really do believe this isn't a war for them. This isn't a war just about Ukraine. It is a war about sort of the, the world order and Russia's place in it. And they genuinely believe that the West um, is close to a real crisis that essentially means they're going to get away with this and that we're going to move into a different type of sort of geopolitical setting, a really sort of brutally realist one, you know, sort of the weak must suffer what they what they will. 
um, set up. So I think as well, understanding when we talk about about the war, understanding sort of what Russians think this war is about and and what war Russians are watching or, or reading about. That can't continue forever, of course, given the high number of losses. But I mean, it took 10 years sort of for the Soviet war in Afghanistan to start having that effect. So I don't think in the short to medium term, if we call that sort of the next sort of one to three years, we should we should expect that to have some sort of immediate result that I very much hope I'm wrong. No, and I think that's that is really consistent with what everybody seems to be saying at the moment, which is that there's no sign that you're going to I, I think generally everyone is saying even if Putin goes, which is a possibility, but you know, impossible to determine, you have to be careful what you wish for, because there's no sign that everybody's saying we must get rid of him and stop the war. There's there's every sense in which he is but one part of it. Sorry, that's what I hear people saying. But I, can I then move us on to this question about being Russian? Because we talked about having the myth and this this question about this this conflict is about Russian identity mm-hmm. in some way. And I think you've written both about the role of religion in in sort of Russian identity, and not not just sort of Orthodox Christianity, but the other official religions in Russian. But also minorities in Russia. So, so you have in in our heads, we've we've all now got the idea of the sort of the heartland of Russia and the reason that Kiev is so important in that narrative. But of course, Russia is so complicated. Um, does this myth appeal to everybody, regardless? Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. That's a really interesting question that I actually wish more people asked. Um, it really doesn't. So I looked at just one case study to, to kind of make this point. It's, I mean, it's for an academic chapter that probably four people will ever read. <laughs> but um, it's about well, how, welcome, um, welcome to the club, Jade. Welcome. To the club. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's about how the the state, the Kremlin, tries to use its sort of generic, if you can call it that, sort of um, all, all Russian narrative of, of the Great Patriotic War and to apply it to Kalmykia, which is um, a sort of a Buddhist republic in the North Caucasus, where the entire population was deported from Kalmykia and the, the Republic of Kalmykia was destroyed um, because a few of them had collaborated with the with occupying Nazi forces. Um, and so, of course, you think, well, how can they just try to impose that, you know, the blanket narrative of the Great Patriotic War as like, you know, heroes versus villains. But they really do. They didn't try to in any way incorporate the story of the deportations or um, they just completely ignored it. So I don't think that this narrative at all has the same appeal. And I know that in certain national sort of certain minority uh, republics in, in Russia, Zelensky in particular has a real sort of cult following, in particular like Tatarstan, which mm. is. And he did the thing at the um, yes. sorry, but the the monument to Imam Shamil mm-hmm. in in Kiev, didn't he? And I thought that was really interesting because that's this direct crossover to you know kind of nationalist, but also jihadi leader from the Caucasus, and and Zelensky is is talking about him. I'm not sure how it necessarily played in Chechnya because actually Imam Shamil has quite a complex um, reputation in Chechnya, but it wasn't just aimed at Chechnya. It was aimed more, you know, it was a symbolic speech aimed at all of the the peoples of the Russian Federation who are not ethnically Russian. And it's hard to know how it went down because, you know, most of the regimes or the sort of like like the mini Putins, um, the governors in charge of those regions are are completely terrifying and and you can't really trust any polls. But um, I imagine it, I think it's, I think it's very clever. And I think um, we all, 
it's very reasonable to assume that there is separatist leanings in a lot of those um, republics, particularly Tatarstan. We saw that in the 90s when when things were freer or at least less um, less easily governed. Um, and so I think it would have gone down. I think it's a very clever idea. And I, I, in, I've just written a paper, well, I'm writing it up still, on how how Russia uses the narrative of colonialism, Western colonialism in Africa. And I've been thinking about to what extent you know, Zelensky or Zelensky's team could try to almost um, tap into that legacy themselves because it's very powerful. It's very powerful undermining the West, but it would be very useful if if Ukraine, you know, since they're trying this sort of, we've been colonized to, um, they're trying to bond over sort of shared colonization experience with, with, with nations inside Russia. It'd be interesting to see if they could shift that to nations um, outside Russia with no experience of the Soviet Union. I mean, basically, is the is the Russian narrative really one of obviously of liberation? I mean, this is basically their attitude towards Western colonialism. Or, I mean, I I remember going to a conference where you know the Russians would talk about you know their march into the Caucasus or their march through Central Asia in the nineteenth century, or whatever. And for them, this wasn't about a sort of a imperial expansion. This was almost they were interpreting it as a sort of a civilizing liberation. You know, we were there to sort of bring great achievements, the achievements of civilization to the natives who clearly welcomed us with open mm-hmm. arms. And it was in complete contrast, obviously, to their analysis of what the hell went on in the West, you know, for the, for them, mm-hmm. you know, the way it, 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 there was a sort of a merger between the sort of the Russian and the Soviet, if I can put it that way, interpretation of what, what Western colonialism was. Uh, and I suppose, as you say, you know, in relation to Ukraine, if, if Zelensky and others could sort of uh, turn that argument on its head, it shouldn't be that difficult in some ways, but you would think. But mm-hmm. at the same time, I suppose from the Russian perspective, Ukraine is just simply part of Mother Russia anyway. So, I mean, it's it's not an act of, uh, you know, it's it's just an act of. Well, the Chinese might say reunification, isn't it? I mean, it's not a, it's not an act of aggression. No, I mean exactly. Um, and, and you're quite right, and that you have this sort of sense of colonial exceptionalism, which I don't think is unique to Russia. I think you see it in sort of Turkey and. And, and sort of Japan, sort of retelling of their history as well. Um, this idea that oh no, we weren't really an empire because, yeah. and in Russia's case, it's because it was contiguous. Yeah. Um, so as opposed to sort of being overseas, like like for the for British Empire, for example. Um, and I mean, a, a lot of it is is of course nonsense. Um, and I think even the way that they sort of tell it when they start getting into these civilization, oh, we bought them this, and I'm always like tempted to finish sentence like, did you bring them railways? <laughs> Because it just reminds me so much of the UK discussions. Like, what about the railways? I know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I just want to come back to a point that both of you had raised, though, which is just to do with sort of Russian history and its and the relevance of it in this war and, and sort of Russian identity. Um, because I kept on meaning to come back to my questions and then getting sidetracked by my own thoughts, as, as is always the way. But about this idea of sort of historic Russia and Ukraine's role in it, if, if that would be okay. Um, just because... Sure. I mean, even... When on his eve of war speech, or his morning of the war speech, um, just before he launched the invasion, sort of Putin references this idea that um, that he's invading to protect um, Russia's historical future, which I find just a really unusual. Obviously, it's quite an unusual phrase, um, and so I've been thinking about it quite a lot. And um, I was thinking about, okay, sure, um, Russia thinks that sort of Ukraine is. Is, is part of Russia. But I think it's deeper than that. I think it's about the idea that Ukraine's entire sort of different understanding of itself 
without Ukraine, Russia doesn't work. It's not just that Russia isn't an empire without Ukraine in the sort of famous phrase. It's that Russia's understanding of its own or the Kremlin's sort of the, the view of Russian identity that the Kremlin is promoting, it just doesn't work. So if you think that, I mean, they, there's a very essentialist understanding of, of, of identity there, but if we say that that essence is this idea of this kind of historic Russia, this third Rome, you know, based on orthodoxy with gathering all the lands of Rus, if we say that that establishes Russia's right to behave as a sort of a great power with its own special path of development, like anti-West or against the West, um, a sort of state civilization has this sort of messianism, that's broadly the sort of view of the world, a view of Russia that the Kremlin espouses. But without Ukraine, that essence evaporates. You, you can't really be a great power if you can't control your smaller neighbour, you can't conquer a city that's sort of 40 kilometres from your border, doesn't really work. Um, and you can't convince, you don't have this great like sort of messianic role if you can't convince even Rus ethnic Russians who are Russian speakers to join you in cultural communion, you have to bomb them. It, it just it just doesn't work. And so I think it'd be very, very hard for Russia to ever accept that, that this war has failed because we see all the time this idea that, oh, you know, like Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said that, you know, without Russia, Ukraine doesn't have any history. But I think it's actually the opposite. Without Ukraine, the Kremlin's understanding of Russian history, and it's not just the Kremlin's, it's in most of Russian society today, that doesn't exist. Almost their Russia doesn't exist without Ukraine rather than vice versa, which is why I don't think it ends, you know, simply with, OK, you can have her son and then we'll all just get on with our lives. But you can, it's, it's curious, isn't it? Because you can... You can choose. It comes back to the whole question about memory making and memory diplomacy. You can actually choose mm -hmm. what you want your memory to be. And I suppose the unfortunate fact is that the memory that they've chosen, the story they've chosen to tell, is dependent on Ukraine being part of Russia. It, they could have chosen to tell a story from the beginning, which wasn't dependent on Ukraine being a part of Russia, but because they have done they're sort of hostage now. Yes, although to, I think I agree it that they, it's definitely a choice, but I also think it's to do with how they understand the nation. So they have this very primordial sense of like, you know, there are some nations are nations and some aren't, you know, almost that there are sovereign nations and there are non-sovereign, you know, and there are colonies in, in the words of Putin earlier this year. And um, as opposed to that sort of more constructivist vision of a nation as something, you know, a country that comes together around shared bonds, because there isn't really much that can bond the Russian nation together. It's ethnically very diverse, religiously diverse. There's no ideology. Um, there's no, obviously, civic. <laughs> You're not going to do well with much sort of civic identity building it around that at the moment um and you can't do ethno-nationalists because of course then it would all then sort of lots of um it just wouldn't work because it's so I mean, it, is, it is remarkable isn't it as you say the paradox there that it, they, they've relied on a very very sort of vulgar primordial understanding of the nation mm -hmm. because frankly they don't they can't really build it on any other you know they can't construct it so they've relapsed into this you know it just is it's a natural existence and this is what it is and uh, you lot are all part of it, whether you like it or not, type of thing. Yes, exactly. And ironically, I actually think this was like an evolution from trying to construct it, because I think right. what Putin originally realised was that the only thing that really bonds the Russian people is a shared view of history, and particularly the memory of the Great Patriotic War. And then as this kind of obsession with history went further and further, the idea that history is not just, you know, a politically useful tool, which of course it is, but... Um, 
that it's actually, you know, the real essence of Russian identity rather than just what they were using to create a Russian identity seemed to somehow become very embedded. And, and um, it's almost, uh, there's a lovely Russian phrase that um, sort of Putin sort of sung himself to sleep with his own lullabies. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and you do, I mean, he drank his own Kool-Aid. Um, in he less, certainly did. <laughs> unless it was of American terms. I mean, yeah. the other thing which, you know, we have strong parallels is this idea that, of course, if as the war in Ukraine goes wrong, and, and, and the Ukrainians don't suddenly embrace their uh, fraternal um, uh, allies, in a sense, or their, their, their brothers in arms. Of course, the war is being defined as a war against NATO or a war against, you know, the United States. So if they do lose, they're not losing, you know, to the Ukrainians. They're using to this vast sort of international conspiracy, effectively. To the Anglo-Saxons, actually. Again, it's a historical term, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. You know, that doesn't represent... Who, who are the Anglo-Saxons nowadays when uh-huh. Britain and America have incredibly diverse populations, actually? So it's... I find even that is fascinating. Yeah, it's a myth. It's a myth on a myth, isn't it? I mean, you're just and and you see this as I said, you know, another. I mean, Iran is very common with that. I mean, we didn't lose the war against Iraq. We lost the war against America, who backed Iraq. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's the thing, and it was an international conspiracy against us. So in that way, you know, we're going back to what uh, Suzanne was saying about, you know, sort of a rational interpretation or a myth. You know, in a sense, you, you're never going to have your reckoning. You can just reinterpret the myth in a slightly different way and keep going on it. You know, we mm-hmm. weren't defeated by the Ukrainians, you know, by this comedian, the president, mm-hmm. you know, we were defeated by something much, much bigger. Um, if actually they even accept they were defeated, actually. I mean, that's the other thing. It could just, they could yeah. turn it into some sort of um, great triumph of sacrifice or something. I don't know. But yeah, no, it's true. I remember once getting into sort of like this proper debate with some 14-year-old in Russia about who won the Crimean War. And then I, was, in the end, I was like, I don't care. I actually don't care who yeah. won the Crimean War. Why am I having this discussion? <laughs> but um, but yeah. Um, and does, does religion play a role? So you, d- you did raise this point about the use of religion, but to what extent are they using, uh, you know, the religion and Russian orthodoxy to somehow embellish the, uh, to embellish this, this narrative? I think the Russian Orthodox Church is playing a really important role in legitimizing um, the myth and also in this increasing, this sort of rhetoric that we're hearing increasingly of the sort of desatanization of Ukraine, um, and and um, which sounds completely ridiculous, but, you know, it's being pronounced by people who were once considered serious sort of politicians. Did Medvedev say that? Yeah, yeah, yeah he did. Um, and I think it's really important because I know there was a bit of annoyance when um, the UK government uh, in the summer, I think it was in July, sanctioned uh, Patriarch Kirill. But really, this man is this is this is somebody who's really is encouraging, um, you know, terrible if 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 not genocidal actions um, against Ukrainians. So it's not it's not appropriate to see him as as some sort of religious figure. He is an incredibly political figure, and he's played you know a really important role in, in legitimizing it. Sadly. Jade, we're, we're coming to the end of our time. So I want to ask you a, a sort of swerve sideways question and ask about your role as an academic who studied Russia, starting with studying the language and the literature, moving into, you know, trying to understand the country as a geopolitical actor. But as somebody who who clearly loves the language and literature and teaches Russian culture, this war presents an enormous challenge, doesn't it? Because Russian culture is now, as we've just been discussing, essentially being questioned on all sorts of fronts. 
So where does it leave the study of Russia and the study of Russian literature? And has it fundamentally changed the study of Russian culture by people in the West? I don't know. I hope I hope it does in some ways. But um, well, firstly, I hope it reinvigorates it because clearly I think the approach where you just study countries as if they were all the same um, and you don't have that sort of area knowledge um, is, um, is has been shown un- as unhelpful. However, also going too far the other way where you just focus on Russia without seeing it in context. I think one thing that would be helpful is say for me, um, I always have studied other Slavic languages and when I realised that when I started my PhD, I also picked up Ukrainian so that I could understand the Ukrainian perspectives of this because I realised it was going to be really, really important to be able to read that firsthand. But I would say that I've been a bit surprised by the shock of, of some Russianists over this war. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, of course, also was shocked and, and horrified by this war, and it's a complete different you know, level in terms of scale. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the things that some people went through, I think I went through in 2014, particularly with the downing of MH17, I found that really shocking. And I, I remember I had friends who, you know, were trying to justify it one day and then trying to say it was a lie the other day. And I, it was. I found it really distressing. To be honest with you, I lost probably I'd say ninety percent of my Russian friends over the war in Ukraine. Um, and I think you can probably even hear now, like it's not in my voice, like it's not like a happy time to, to remember. And I always thought that I would live in Russia for, or at least between the two countries, UK and Russia, for, for most of my life. And obviously that that was another shift, and we we returned home in, in twenty fifteen. So this idea that like oh where on, where on earth did this come from is is a bit. Some went from Russianists, not from ordinary people, from Russianists. Sometimes it annoys me a bit because <laughs> I think, well, there were, you know, there were bodies lying lying in in sunflower fields that you know Russia didn't do anything to allow you know children's bodies to be picked up. I don't understand why you're so shocked. Let alone as well, without getting into all of the other stuff, it, the awful stuff it was doing in Syria, um, and then of course the Skripals here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, so those of us who've worked in the sure. British government, um, I you know. If if you're if you're going to sanction the use of you know radiological chemical weapons in the UK, you are already on a different path. And I yeah. think it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've seen you know geopolitical judgments that that seem to we all just take them in our stride, but it's it's not normal behaviour. Um, <laughs> no, no, really, yeah. So so, but in terms of, I mean, it's really difficult, presumably, for students now studying Russian because Mm. they can't go to Russia or because people, you know, and that's going to have a long-term impact on on the discipline, isn't it? It's It's going to have a huge impact. And that's that's one of the things I've been doing in my job at Middlebury was to set up sort of... um, virtual maybe next year will be in Armenia but but we'll see but um to make sure that Russians uh, sorry that Russianists so western uh, students like graduate students of, of Russia are still able to connect with Russian voices and that's been really a difficult one as well because you don't want to in any way legitimize people who are pro-war but ultimately if you don't have young Russianists listening and able to sort of question and argue with Russians who who are, you know, not I'm not talking about like the real sort of genocide inciting ones, but people maybe like Dmitry Trenin, who is, is is sort of come to accept the war out of some sort of place of loyalty. If they can't even handle speaking or hearing from Dmitry Trenin, then what hope do they have actually ever understanding Russia? Because Dmitry Trenin is ridiculously moderate for, for the Russian context. And that's a really difficult situation because in this atmosphere, of course, and, and I understand, I also sometimes find it 
I also often find it very difficult um, to, to speak to people who who are trying to explain away, you know, the fact that their country is is, is bombing, you know, the houses of people who are my friends, you know, places where, where I've lived. So it's of course it's it's personal as well, but you, you have to do that. You have to have that empathy so you can understand the other side, not because you should like them, because you should sympathize with them or indulge it. But just because there's nothing genetic about Russians that makes them like evil or support this war, this will happen again. And it's just really important to sort of start to unpick the myths, understand how they work so we can argue better against them. That's I think that's a, that's a really good note to end on, because that is what Ali and I are trying to there do. Are, there are sadly podcasts. so many, so many parallels, Jade, so many parallels of what you have said. We don't have time. <laughs> I know, but there are so <laughs> many. And uh, well, at least I, I'm pleased to hear that you are facing uh, many of the same uh, difficulties and uh, uh, <laughs> questions that I've uh, I've had to also face over the last decade uh, vis-a-vis Iran. Um, but I thought that was uh, that was great. I think that was. Uh, I think we are going to um, round it up now, are we? I don't yeah. know, Suzanne. Oh, you so don't look we, as if you have another question. Do you have another question? No, we can, we can't. We've finished. We've we run out of time. Oh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. We are saying thank you. Thank you, Jane. Thank you very much. Really for that. enjoyed it. I, uh, that you. was brilliant, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to call on you again, perhaps I near the so. time when your it. book is coming. Uh, <laughs> when your books when your books come out. But that was great. Thank you so much for joining us, thank and you. Uh, it's goodbye from me. And me. Goodbye. Bye. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>